Hey there, it's Shelly with a quick disclaimer for this episode. I had some audio problems that make it sound in a couple of cases like I'm shorting out or that I'm very quiet when I'm asking a question. The good news is that my two guests sound great for the entire episode. And because this problem only affected me in a couple of cases, I decided to go ahead and publish, even though there is a bit of an audio glitch here and there. So I apologize for any inconvenience or confusion this might cause. And I assure you that I'm going to go out and buy me a better cable real soon. On with the show. Hello and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. This is episode 31 for June 23rd, 2020. It's great to be here in the middle of a very unusual Worldwide Developers Conference, Apple Worldwide Developers Conference, and I have two great guests to talk with me about that, about the unusual circumstances we find ourselves in, and about tech conferences generally. And let me introduce my guests right now. First up is Aline Sims, who is a professional talker at and writer at App Launch Map and uh, Originality FM. Aline, welcome to the show. Hey, Shelley. How are you? I'm great. It's so good to talk to you again. We, we've, we've done this before, but it's been a really long time. Yeah, it has been a while, hasn't it? Yes. And next up, Stephen Scott, who is the host of Double Tap Canada at, on AMI Radio and Tech Talk on RNIB. Stephen, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for allowing me on. It's great to talk to you. I've been on your show, so I figured turn it. <laughs> that was very kind of you to, to allow well, me to what, be here. It's my pleasure, and I'm looking forward to it. So before we get started, I, I want to give Aline and Stephen a little chance to tell you about who they are because their affiliations don't really sort of do them justice in terms of their uh, interaction with uh, the tech world and tech conferences. So Aline, let's let's start with you. Tell us about uh, what you do. That's a really good question. Well, I, I'm a podcaster, um, mainly doing stuff uh, like Dungeons and Dragons and very professional um, endeavors such as that. Uh, but I am also the proprietress of App Launch Map. And there I have uh, the App Launch Map Field Guide, which is a resource for Mac and iOS developers to help them with the non code side of launching apps. So the guide goes through you know, figuring out how to put your your app's product page together, what goes on it, what do you need from screenshots, some tips and tricks for um, what to think about for your icon design and, you know, kind of all of those, like the minutia that if you've never launched an app before, maybe it's been a while since you've launched an app, or even you want to do, you want to elevate your current app store presence or web presence, it's kind of all in there to help developers with that. Very cool. So if WWDC were happening in person right now, you'd probably be out and about letting people know what you do and talking to people that you already work with and just sort of schmoozing a lot, right? Yep. That's that's typically what I do. Um, it's very different this year. Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> All right. Well, we'll get into in that. my apartment. Yes. Right. Oh, so 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 closed off and so far away from everything. And, and Stephen Scott, you are a content producer for audio, and we can we can kind of tell that by by listening to you. But tell us about AMI and RNIB and and what those organizations are and what kind of content you make for them. 
Well, you know, where Alina is a, a professional, uh, I'm the exact opposite of that. I, I just wing it and, and manage to, you know, get people to listen. I don't know how it works, to be honest. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. I've got two great radio shows and a TV show as well, uh, which I, I always forget to put on the Twitter bio for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, I think it's because so many people over my career have told me I've got a great face for radio. So I tend to stick with that. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I host uh, Double Tap Canada on AMI-audio, which is a uh, fantastic network of uh, radio and television programming aimed at the disability community. Uh, lots of content on there, which is captioned, which is signed, which is uh, audio described. All the content is available to whoever wants to consume it, essentially. It's, it's mainstream content mixed with disability content, Double Tap Canada being a prime example of that, a radio show that is all about assistive technology for blind and disabled people. Um, we're, we're really kind of expanding that a bit this year. We're, we're looking to get more people from different backgrounds on rather than not specifically talking just about blindness anymore, but actually focusing on other disabilities as well. Because, you know, it might be shocking to some people to know, but you can be blind and have additional disabilities as well. Um, so it's actually important to, you know, highlight that. And, you know, also, I guess, to really get the message out to as many people as possible, that we all have challenges, whether we have either consider ourselves to have a disability or not, we all have challenges. And if we can use this this medium of podcast, of radio, and of TV now, with Double Tap TV on AMI-TV as well, uh, to really get that message out there, then that's all for the good. And then on the other side, uh, my sort of day job, if you like, is RNIB Connect Radio, which is based in the UK. And uh, there I host Tech Talk and a number of other shows as well, including one of their daily programs called The Daily Connect, uh, which is very much focused on uh, uh, disability uh, and blindness more generally and talking about all kinds of topics. For the moment, of course, it's all about social distancing and how lockdown is affecting all of us and how we're all getting our shopping and all of those things. But when it comes to Tech Talk, of course, we're focusing more on technology Again, on the disability angle uh, and really focusing on what the RNIB as a charity is doing and how it is helping blind and partially sighted people in the UK to get to grips with the latest technology. So two quite different shows. Um, with a number of people involved. I mean, I, I couldn't do it without Robin Christofferson of the UK, who, Shelley, I know you know well. Our mutual friend, yes. Exactly. Um I've got Sean Priest, I've got Tim Schwartz, I've got Jay Taylor, I've got amazing people, and of course, Marco Flalo on the TV side, who uh, makes the TV show happen. So you know, there's lots and lots go on, uh, and lots of content uh, is being created. We kind of hoped to get out a bit more this year, or it was our first year of getting out. We managed to get to CES at the beginning of the year, which was brilliant, and then it all stopped <laughs> after that. But uh, hopefully we'll get back on the road again soon and uh, bring out lots more uh, great content. Absolutely. And what you were saying about talking about multiple disabilities is interesting because I know we've been we we as folks who are creators, I think, and certainly myself have been thinking a lot about diversity lately in terms of talking to and with people who come from different places than we do necessarily. And I know even on this show where part of the reason for its existence is diversity and talking to voices that are focused on accessibility. I know a lot of blind people. I don't necessarily know as many people who are involved in other disability communities, nor have I talked to them as, as I would like. So that's, that's interesting to hear that that's something that you're talking about as well. 
Yeah, I think that's key. You know, we've got to see diversity in every way. Uh, and of course, we did. We sometimes can be uh, accused of focusing solely on the disability. What is your disability? And sure. if it's blindness, that's what we'll talk about. And that's great. But we've got to expand on that. And we've got to look outside the community as well. You know, I, I come from a, a city in Scotland called Glasgow. And whether you're from Glasgow or you're from Ghana, a lot of the technology issues can apply uh, the same. A lot of the challenges are the same if you're blind in, in either place. But the difference being that your access to that technology is different. Your experience of that technology is different. Your availability of that technology is different. So there are different challenges in different parts of the world. And we've got to try and focus on that. We have to be as diverse as, as the wider community is being asked to be as well. Yeah. Well, let's dig into Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference a little bit. So as I was uh, saying at the beginning, it's very different this year than it has been in the past. It is happening virtually, so we're all consuming it from the place we live. Aline and I probably would each be there this year. I'm not certain about myself. I don't know, Stephen, whether you were, were planning to go before COVID happened or not. Do you, do you, have you ever been to WWDC? I've never, I'm still waiting for the invite. Um, ah, yes. Don't to have one yet. <laughs> It's all about the lobby con. Yeah, yeah. I need to get I need to get me you guys. I think that's the bottom line. How come is your plus I'm, one? I'm starting to figure that out is that because I went last year and hadn't gone in many years and was not really plugged into the community. This is something I was gonna get to later, but it is an interesting topic to me is that if you're not if you're not the badged one and if you're not there to consume the Apple content for which you paid quite a lot of money, you're kind of left to your own devices about how to make your own WDC happen and what that means for you, whether it's professional networking or whether it's human contact or whether it's learning something new. And I, frankly, I struggled with that last year. And so there's a part of me, there's a very small part of me that's at least a little glad as somebody who's trying to cover it this year that I don't have that added stress of trying to figure out where I fit in the social dynamics of the whole thing. Mm. Yeah, I, I found that at CES for sure. That was a very similar experience. I, I felt like I was trying to cover uh, something that was was very difficult to cover from a very niche angle, and trying to get people on board with that was was quite challenging. Aline, what's your take on that? You've you've actually been involved in some of the the sort of orbiting conferences of of WWDC, so you probably have a better connection to those things than than perhaps I do. Yeah, it's interesting because um, WWDC is so huge. And beyond the conference itself, which is, what, 1,800-ish attendees, plus all of the Apple staff who comes to support, plus the engineers who are giving presentations and running labs, plus, you know, event uh, venue staff. It's just this massive undertaking. But in addition to that, you have the people like me who come into town because it's where everybody is. Not literally everybody, but it's where so, so many people are. And so for me, it's a chance to to talk to and catch up with friends, to do a little bit of networking. Although mostly it's just like sitting around with friends at various coffee shops talking. And um it's hard. I think there there's a really um, difficult social dynamic that that goes into kind of being WWDC adjacent. Maybe going to AltConf or Layers, which I have done in various years. Uh, it it's just it's really really difficult. It's 
if you have friends, it's like, yes, I'm going to kind of glom onto them. But as someone who's very introverted, kind of breaking into groups and going up to new people is very difficult for me. But it's kind of what you have to do. Um, you have to you kind of have to elbow your way in a little bit. And it sounds like I'm listening to myself talk and it's like, it's fundamentally unwelcoming. And I don't think that's the case. But it is kind of a, a tricky social dynamic. Um, having said that, I, you know, I wasn't sure if I would go this year. And then kind of the decision was made for me um, because of global issues. And I'm feeling kind of weird not being, you know, in San Jose or in San Francisco, um, talking with people about what happened at the keynote and doing kind of that processing and bouncing thoughts and ideas off of one another, it's a very different experience. I felt that too. And as I, as I alluded to, I, I found going last year and not being a regular, that sort of not finding a place to make my connection, even though I had, I knew some people that were going to be there and I did encounter them. Include, I, I think, I can't remember if you, you and I didn't even connect there. We connected later. We, later, later, we met at a San Francisco thing a couple of months later, but we didn't yep. even meet up and we know we've known each other for a while. And I, you do sort of have to be in the circles that your friend group or your acquaintance group is for that to work. And, and also, I mean, I, I, I hate to talk about it because it's just not something I'm comfortable with, but the disability plays in too, because if you're across the room from me, I might not see you. And if you see me, then we can have a conversation. But unless I'm using technology or unless I've, you know, gone out of my way to essentially stalk people, which I've done, um, then I, I might miss them. And that's, that's unfortunate. And it, it, what it means is not that it's impossible, but it means it's a lot more you spend a lot more work sort of making those social connections happen than you otherwise would and and that's just sort of an interesting dynamic for somebody with a disability who's if they're traveling by themselves a lot of times honestly especially with the shift to san jose over san francisco like in san francisco i feel like there were a lot more serendipitous meetings because it it's smaller, yes. not necessarily like the actual footprint of the conference is smaller The you know, it's one building. Um, and so it's like, oh, yeah, you'd run into people all the time. But San Jose is so spread out. The convention center is so big. The um, the hotels, you know, it's not like there are a couple of hotels um, right next to each other and you you know you meet with a group you know when you're walking to Moscone or something it's a lot different in that regard and the spaces that San Jose San Jose the spaces San Jose geez Louise <laughs> the spaces San Jose has are different you know it's uh, things closed down a lot earlier than they they did in San Francisco um, so you have, you know, a little bit of like hopping from place to place. It's a, it's a little bit harder to kind of plant and tell people that you'll be at one place for a while. So I find that now going to San, San Jose for Dub Dub, if I want to see somebody, like I have to really intentionally put forth the effort to meet with them and say, hey, I want to see you. We need to schedule something. Whereas I don't feel like I needed to do that as much in the before times before they made the move. It's true. And in San Francisco, there were even the sort of hangout places, whether they were bars or coffee shops, you were always going to find somebody 
in those spaces, or you could just post up in those spaces and wait, and maybe you'd run into somebody, you know, the Marriott Bar or the Thirsty Bear or some of those places that everybody knows about. I couldn't tell you the names of two or three coffee shops in San Jose. They exist, but they're spaced further apart. And the, in mm-hmm. fact, the way Apple takes over the convention center sort of contributes to it, too, because streets are closed and pathways are closed. And yeah, you just don't People take different paths to get places, and yeah, it's a little it's a little harder to sort of make connections in that environment. And Stephen, you co- covered CES, which could probably be a whole other thing, but you know, Vegas yeah. in any circumstance oh, is difficult. Yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely, and, and I'll be honest, I was amazed. I come from, a, as I said earlier, you know, a small town, a small city, uh, where you know our conference center has four halls, and that's it. And you know, you arrive in Vegas, and you find that it's you know umpteen halls across various hotels, across various convention centers. And suddenly, you know, you, you, the scale is just beyond anything I've ever experienced. And it was completely overwhelming. I was very lucky that I had taken with me someone who was going to be my eyes during that whole process. And I really needed that. And I'm so glad because there, I don't think I would have managed that, especially first time on my own. I just did not grasp yeah, I just thought, you know, if there's an interview I need to do up at the next convention centre, you know, I, I could schedule it and I'll be there in 10 minutes. Little did I know it would take me 10 minutes just to get out <laughs> of the hall I was in. Uh, yeah. You know, and it's those things you just don't think about. And I think as a blind person, you tend to not, you know, you you, you plan so much in your life when you're, when you're organising for these things. And you can only account for so much. And, you know, like I say, having been there at CES now, uh, this year, I now think if I was going back, I'd have a very different perspective on it, a very different outline on how I was going to do things and a bit more of a realistic sense of what was going to happen. WWDC sounds very similar. It is true that the first time you go to an event like that, it's it's overwhelming. Like as as the difficulties I had in San Jose, whatever they might have been, are going to be less of a thing next year, either because I changed the way I do things or more just because I sort of understand where things are. I mean, just stuff like the size of the convention center and you're at one end and the person you're trying to meet is at the other end and that's going to take 10 minutes. And yeah, just that, it, it, I almost feel like the first time you're going to an event like this, you should diminish your expectations considerably and maybe even just go for one day and get the lay of the land and, and don't, because I was really disappointed, to be honest. I was looking forward to it. I had an invite. I had an interview with Apple folks. It, I was going to, I was prepared to go in triumphant and I just, you know, had sort of a personal solitary experience that I wouldn't wish on anyone. And I, and I feel like, you know, not, not diminishing my expectations or not being realistic about them was, was probably a mistake that I made too. Mm, Yeah. Well, let's talk about this year's WWDC, which was, as we said, all virtual. Uh, The keynote, which was actually a little shorter than some of them have been a couple of hours worth though of, uh, speeches presentations that were uh, that had lots of uh, snazzy transition very fancy video very very pretty um where we learned all about all of what's what what apple has in store for all of its operating systems and the transition to the arm processor so i just want to throw it open and and get i uh, both of you to talk about your your general impressions either of what you saw in terms of products or just the experience of watching wwdc in this virtual format okay alina go first I really liked the keynote. Uh, I thought they did a great job of working with what was available to them. I think that they did a really good job of showing showing Apple Park in a way that they wouldn't have been able to do if 
you know, it were the typical WWDC. So we got a lot of, you know, like drone footage uh, of the park and kind of zooming around um, the complex and even Steve Jobs Theater getting kind of the upper and lower view of that was was really neat. Um, I appreciated uh, that they opened, Tim Cook opened talking about um, social unrest, Black Lives Matter, um, you know, the issues that uh, are very prominently on our minds nowadays and that deserve attention and that um, I wish more companies were um, talking about openly and sincerely as opposed to, you know, in an image post on Instagram. Um, I really appreciated that they took the time to do that. I liked that Craig was really the narrator of the, of the whole thing. Um, I I think of him as Apple's dad. And so (laughs) um, it was, it was just, you know, like, you know, going to visit dad at the office and seeing what he's working on. And I like that. I don't know. I, I, I I like Craig Federighi quite a bit. Um, I thought, I thought they did, such a good job. I did not miss the demos that that they typically do. Um, I I typically do not find a lot of value in those, so I kind of appreciate that they could really focus on the OS updates and what what would be coming. It felt more developer focused than a WWDC keynote has felt in a long time, and you know. I like that because that's that's my community. Um, I think the trade-off is that because, you know, you don't have people walking on stage, you don't have the product demos, you don't have the pause for applause, it was very information dense. And the keynotes always are, but especially now. So you think about maybe this was a little shorter than a typical keynote is, but that's because they were still trying, you know, they were conveying all this information without all of those interruptions. And it kind of makes me think of, I kind of want to splice together a keynote without all of the pauses for applause, without the demos, you know, without all of that stuff and see how long they actually are. I'm wondering if they fall shorter because they have to convey the information in a different way. I don't know. It's, it's just interesting to me. But um, I thought it was great. I really thought it was great. I appreciated watching it. And it felt like it was for me as an audience member remotely. Whereas, you know, a typical presentation, they're talking to the press. They're talking to the developers in the room. And so it was kind of nice to feel a little bit more included in that with this um pandemic time keynote. And I'm wondering if maybe they'll stick to a format like this for things going forward. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more with any of that. I think that it was a brilliant presentation. And I, I, I really like the way you, you put that, Aileen, because that, that's the thing. It was it was aimed at us. It was aimed at the people sitting at home, watching it on their couch, listening to it, or you know, whatever, whatever you were, wherever you are in the world, it was it was for you. And that was very cleverly done. And you're right. I mean, I'll have to be honest, some of the drone shots made me feel sick most of the time. Um, far too much emotion for me going on. Um, they were quick. Yeah, they were very quick. Um, but I, I thought it was brilliant. It was so well produced. And uh, I, I really enjoyed it. The one thing that annoyed me slightly was the lack of audio description, which I was kind of surprised at, because clearly this was all pre-recorded. And clearly, knowing 
following Apple, they would have a lot of these product videos, for example, would already have uh, some kind of description on them because when we see these videos later on apple.com, they will have descriptions. So why couldn't they run a descriptive track, say, over Apple TV? I was watching it on Apple TV specifically because I thought, well, this is maybe the place I'll find it. Um, and in the end, I, I switched to apple.com to watch the stream and it was uh, there was no AD there either. So that's a shame. Yeah. Um, that was the only thing that, that kind of got, got a bit down. But at the same token, it, it was a brilliant, brilliant keynote. Um, I will say one thing, though, and I know we're going to talk about all the, the individual bits uh, and information that came out and, and you know, accessibility in particular. Um, but I'm going to put it out there first. My The most amazing thing for me, and I know there's plenty of amazing things going on and there was lots of interesting features that were talked about. Um, for me, it was the AirPods. I know this is pathetic, but I really loved what they talked about with AirPods, spatial sound, and how they're creating this uh, 4D, if you like, world. In fact, probably more than that, I guess, because you're getting sound from left, right, back, uh, you know, front, top, you know, as well uh, through the AirPods. I'm really excited about that. And I think that the development of the AirPods Pro uh, is is good news in that front. But I know that's, I, I know it's not the most exciting feature, perhaps, that was on stage uh, or, or discussed, but uh, it was the one that appealed to me. It is on my list, and I want to talk to you, for Stephen, for a very specific reason I have that on my list, which, if you don't mind, I'll get to shortly. Mm. Uh, the audio description thing is interesting because, as I said, I was in the hall last year and had I was in the, I had press seating. It was very, very, very cushy. Uh, but they handed me a box, and I had audio description live in the hall, which they didn't make yes. available uh, to viewers at home. But they did make available, and so they clearly could do it, and especially, as you say, this year because they were recorded. I was really hopeful that they would do it. What The nice thing about the way they had done audio description last year was that they they even described the presenters, which in a couple cases was helpful because at least one presenter this year and I maybe one or two last year were, were wheelchair users, and they mentioned that. And I thought that was very cool. They they named the present. They would say so and so is a presenter, and they're wearing such and such. And that way, I want to know this was kind of a minor thing, but it was kind of nice. And mm-hmm. there were more videos at last year and have been in the past that that sort of need audio description. But even the live pre- and they it was live audio description last year. But in this case, it certainly would have been nice if it had been recorded, especially since it was so focused on a general audience. Very. Very little developer. The, the State of the Union, of course, was much more focused on development. But I was frankly surprised at how little attention directly was paid to developers in most of the, the keynote. And I think that was necessarily a bad thing. They knew that they had a much larger audience than normal. But it, it was interesting to me. The thing, the thing for me, though, is, I mean, I'm not a developer. So I'm watching this purely from the perspective of where's the new toys? And uh, obviously, you don't get that much in the way of new toys at WWDC. We thought we might see some new hardware, but we obviously didn't. We Well, we did and we didn't, if you know what I mean. Um, and we'll get to that. But uh, yeah, I, I thought, you know, this this is a this is definitely focused at uh, not so much the end user, but certainly the journalists, the press, and the development teams and develop, development managers, I imagine, in a lot of cases as well, you know, to hook them in. Yeah, what I want to do as far as what was announced, instead of going through the whole thing, which frankly I did on a podcast yesterday, and I'm sure that a lot of people will, is I would love to hear from each of you about what you think the most interesting 
things that were discussed at WWC that the keynote yesterday were. And just as, as an overview, as I mentioned before, each of the operating systems is having a refresh, plus Apple has announced a transition to an ARM processor, plus the AirPods that Stephen mentioned. And then there's some accessibility tidbits. And I, I will say that when we get to accessibility, I don't by any means believe that we have a complete picture because there wasn't a direct focus on accessibility, and most of what I have to talk about with you is stuff that I have gleaned from sources since the keynote, and there are a lot of accessibility-related sessions this week. Seems like more than usual. I'm not certain, but that's that's pretty cool, but, but it's certainly not something that was in the keynote. But I guess I'd just love to hear, like, what are two or three of the things that each of you was, was most intrigued by that we saw yesterday? Well, look, I'm going to jump in here first, Eileen, if you don't mind, because I, go I, do it. I, I just go, go, go. you're excited. Got, I can tell. I've got to say it, right? I mean, come on, you've just said it. It's the it's the move towards ARM processors. I was not excited about this at all prior to WWDC. I thought this is just because the the way I read it was this was going to be essentially a, a Chromebook equivalent uh, in a Mac form that would be you know a kind of basic MacBook, your everyday MacBook for simple tasks, going online, you know, maybe doing a little bit photo editing but don't push it too far forget it video editing you know that kind of thing music production was out the window keep that for the macbook pros what we actually heard about yesterday was that this amazing uh, arm processor is capable of pretty much everything that you would want to do and probably more than you can do with your yeah. current intel mac and i'm just amazed by that and i think the biggest shock was well it was two shocks really but one was that they were uh, running all the demos off of this hardware already so what we were actually seeing on the demos that they were the little demos they were doing on on screen were actually using this hardware and secondly that the processor that they were talking about and actually using as part of the demonstration was the same one that I've got in my iPad Pro 2020 sitting here i was amazed yeah, and I think that's that's kind of the thing. I've wanted, I've been ready for the transition to ARM since I got my iPad, which was the one released in late 2018, just because the battery life on that thing is absolutely phenomenal. And it's like, you know, applying that when, when Apple has more control over the chipset, they can, you know, they can optimize for performance in ways that they can't with third-party uh, providers. And so I've been excited because I'm, you know, a MacBook user. I don't have a desktop, but uh, I kind of feel like a lot of what the keynote and especially the State of the Union was all about was like, no, look, really, this is going to be good for everybody. Look at the performance. This, is, this isn't just about battery life. This is about overall performance. It's about how much better everything is going to be, you know, um, you're going to be able to edit video faster if that's what you do, or maybe compile your Xcode projects faster, like whatever, I don't know. But I felt like a lot of what the State of the Union and the keynote were talking about was just really selling developers on how much better life is going to be once the ARM transition is, you know, fully realized and also kind of and we're not going to make this incredibly difficult for you it's going to be okay there was a little bit of like developer reassurance happening but i think the arm transition is going to be an amazing move for apple just because they're going to be able to control the performance of their machines even more closely than they have been in the past 
it's interesting because when the 2018 iPad Pros came out, they made a big deal about their performance and were very aggressive about comparing them to computer performance and saying how fast you could run applications that were graphics intensive and that you did image editing with Photoshop and that sort of thing. And I remember at the time thinking that they were overselling that. But in, in retro, not, not that it wasn't true, but just that it seemed like an odd thing to promote for an iPad, because I've always been sort of skeptical at the idea of an iPad as a replacement for a fully functioning computer. I, I have a MacBook Pro and I, I like it and it does things in ways that I find more flexible than an iPad Pro, even though I have one of those also. But in retrospect, I feel like that announcement, those announcements and the subsequent iPad announcements have really been laying the groundwork for this. So whether you're, an, I mean, clearly they were working on it at the time, but, but whether you're an iPad person or a Mac person, what they're saying is this processor, this set of processors provides the next level of performance, whether you're using iPad OS or whether you're using Mac OS. And it just sort of feels like a consistent story that they're now able to tell with more details on the Mac side. Well, and also, I, I think this is, I think they have been working toward this. And I also think that this is kind of the the initial death knell for um, having separate operating systems. I think with Catalyst coming, you know, to Mac last year and now with the ability to run um, iPadOS and iOS apps on Macs, I really think that what we're starting to see is Apple easing us into um, a, a v- not easing us into a transition period. They're starting a transition period for merging all of this so that we're not talking about watch OS and iOS and iPad OS and Mac OS. And, you know, we don't sure. have all of this where, where it's more of a, like, is this a wrist computer thing or is this another computer thing? And, um, I, I have some feelings about that that I'm still sorting through, but I do think that what we're seeing is really the the outward-facing merger of all of these different operating systems. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's yeah. that's what this is all leading towards, isn't it? It's this convergence of operating systems, which makes so much sense. I'm going to put it out there right now that I think the uh, next iteration will be called the Mac Pad. Uh, and I've trademarked that name, obviously. So, you know, they can buy it off me for a lot of money if they want it. But that's the URL. Yes. (laughs) Well, you're recorded having said it. So, yeah, got to do it now. Got to do it. But but I think that's the thing. I mean, and that was, I guess, one of the most exciting things about the software development side is that we're beginning to see uh, what I would consider to be a nice uniformity uh, around a lot of the apps, especially, like you say, Alina, around the uh, iPad and, and the Mac in particular. I mean, that's going to be the first convergence, isn't it? Where we're going to actually probably get to a point where these two will become one. Um, and, and I think for that, this uniformity that's been taken on now with the Catalyst apps is going to help. And I think it'll be great for accessibility as well, because you know you have a style that you will be used to working on your iPad versus your Mac. Although I do have to say, as a voiceover user on both the MacBook Pro and on the iPad uh, Pro, 
the experience of voiceover is totally different. And that's one thing that really needs to get sorted out because, you know, I, I must admit the the experience of using it on the Mac versus the iPad is just too different for me at times. And actually irritates me. Um, I find the iPad Pro quite difficult to navigate to get things done quickly versus the, uh, the uh, MacBook Pro. And the reason for that, I think, is because I'm being forced to use the screen as well as the keyboard. And I want to run the entire iPad Pro experience from the keyboard. And I don't think it's quite there yet. That's a separate issue. But I think what we're seeing is these uniform apps will go some way to making the experience similar across devices. Yeah, I think accessibility features have to be made more uniform. The thing that's called voiceover on the Mac and the thing that's called voiceover on the iOS devices is only the same in that it does the same thing, but they function differently. They have different sets of keyboard shortcuts. There's a little bit of crossover, but yeah, you're, you have a very different experience. And I mean, without getting too much into the weeds, I feel like your issue with the iPad probably has a lot to do with the fact that voiceover that the voiceover iteration of multitasking is a little ham-handed and is fairly new and that they made significant changes last year that still haven't kind of sorted themselves out. And what I thought you were going to say was that the Mac was the problem rather than the iPad. But, but what you say <laughs> that's about that's funny, but b- mm. because that has the, is the one that has been updated in, hasn't been updated in quite some time. And so and, and my question, should I ever have the opportunity to ask people this question who can answer it, is macOS 11, A, does that mean that we're going to get some new things going on with voiceover and with other accessibility tools? Because they, they really are kind of long in the tooth on the Mac side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. And, you know, even, I mean, it's interesting because a, a lot of people talk about the busy, busy problem, you know, uh, mm-hmm. on Safari, for example. And maybe if Safari, and I don't know the answer to this, is Safari... Uh, under macOS uh, Big Sur uh, version 11, is that going to be a Catalyst app? Because we, we couldn't really tell that yesterday. I wasn't sure uh, from the They're information. They're saying I was that they all are, and as much revision as they've done on Safari, surely, of course, I've said that before and been wrong, surely it is, but I maybe not. <laughs> Because that would be good. I mean, they're already talking about the performance being better than Chrome, mm-hmm. which is good. Uh, but, you know, I'm still getting I, I run a, a MacBook Pro with an i9 processor and 32 gig of RAM on it, and it still gives me busy, busy on Safari. So, you know, it's not a power issue on my part. There's no, something the else going on. Yeah. So hopefully that gets resolved in, in the yeah. new OS. Well, let's talk about some of your highlights from from the software side. Any any operating system, any of the operating systems that's interesting to you? I'd love to hear what uh, intrigues you. I know, Stephen, you said you thought that some of what they were doing uh, with iOS and iPadOS was going to have benefits for accessibility. Have we covered that? Or are there other things that you think that they talked about that are going to be good for us? Um, I, I'm uh, well on iOS and iPadOS. I I feel that a lot of the updates are um, cosmetic. You know, that's the impression I was getting. A lot of things like, for example, taking Siri when you ask for Siri, uh, instead of it taking over the whole screen, you know, you have these little cards that pop up almost like notifications. And I think we just have to wait and see how that works in terms of accessibility. Uh, if it, you know, voiceover grabs focus uh, up there, then that's absolutely great. You know, that'll be fine and it will work really well. And I imagine it probably will. I mean, <laughs> he says with, you know, complacency and hope uh, mixed together uh, that it'll all work lovely. But I, I wonder from a low vision perspective how that's going to work because a lot of what they were talking about designing this in a more translucent way bringing everything into you know in, in you know blending more uh, of the background together instead of uh, 
closing off the entire screen so that you can focus in on Siri instead of it sort of turning up somewhere on the screen. I, I couldn't tell where uh, it was all popping up, but you know that might be a challenge for low vision users, I imagine. So I, I'm just I'm a bit concerned about that from from that perspective. I, I think just I want to just quickly say that I agree with you and that that's also an issue on Mac OS in terms of all the transparency Absolutely. and the way the control yeah. center looked. It, it, I have to come up with a name for this because it's a definite phenomenon when there's an event like this and you see new software and you don't know what its impact will be on accessibility, but based on its look, you can tell there will be some. And when they say words like transparent and translucent and my heart seizes up a little bit, but but there's got to be a term for when you, you have that sort of feeling of dread and you know that it's on some level going to be worked out because Apple... They don't always get it right, but they often do, and they don't ignore accessibility, even if sometimes they don't get all of the details correct. But until you know, until you either see it or get some confirmation of how it's going to work for you, because those features aren't discussed until you get into the either, not even necessarily the the WWDC uh, developer sessions, because they're speaking specifically to the audience that has to make it work, not to the audience that has to, to use it. So sometimes you have to wait till you see the betas. And there's there's this gap of time when you wonder, what's it going to mean that everything is more transparent and translucent? And, you know, it's it's called sliders and accessibility settings, probably, that lets you turn the transparency down. It's called differentiate without color, which they introduced last week, last year, which has not been something I've used a lot on macOS, but based on the amount of discussion there was about color, uh, I feel like that's going to have to be enhanced and made pretty important, or some folks with low vision are going to have some problems. And I mean, don't even get me started on low vision with the, the, the text sizes across iOS. And yeah, where's I, dynamic iOS type? And well, in, in more apps. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a huge problem. That, that's a huge issue, which I mean, Microsoft have managed to figure this out. And but not done Google. it. But not, but, and yeah, that's right. And, and, and not Apple. Have, they've not been able to add this in. I mean, you have it to some degree, but on some apps, but, you know, Facebook, Twitter, for example, the native apps there, they do not support any of that. Now, is that their problem? Is that something Apple could force? Interestingly, I, I had the uh, experience. I don't often go down the Android route in my life uh, because it often it feels like a myth of a mistress to me. Uh, I always feel like I'm cheating on my iPhone whenever I pick up my Samsung. But I have a Samsung Galaxy S10 Plus, which I got because I wanted to you know, test and I wanted to review and I wanted to be able to talk about apps on. And one thing about that particular phone, for example, is that the whole phone responds to dynamic type. It is brilliant. I mean, for a low vision user, it's possibly the best phone because you can have the text size as big as you want across the apps uniformly. Why don't you have that on iOS, on iPadOS, on macOS? It's ridiculous. Aline, talk about your impressions of the, the software side. And if you want to talk about design, feel free, or if there's something else that really struck you on any of the operating systems that, that you want to talk about. I'm really excited for widgets. Um, not so much for, so I currently use things like pCalc um, as a widget um, without, you know, so I don't open the app. I just, and I need to do a little bit of simple math. Um, so it seems as though widgets with like an interactive element are not going to work in iOS 14, which I think is disappointing. But on the flip side, I am kind of excited to be able to finally customize the springboard a little bit. Um, you know, Android for years, as a lot of people have been pointing out, 
has had, you know, you've been able to customize your home screen. You can control where your icons go. As I've heard a lot of people pointing out, we've had the same springboard concept since 2007. It's time for some innovation here. So I'm I'm mostly excited that I'm going to be able to like unlock my phone quickly and see the weather on my home screen. I think that's going to be great. Um, but I am losing some other functionality. So we'll see how that goes. Really, though, I'm I'm excited to. I mean, it's always fun when when we go to the keynote and it's like uh, innovation, you know, like a couple of years ago with the iPad and they were like, no, we've scrapped everything, you know, forget everything you know about um, iOS on iPad and and we're redoing it. And that's always fun, but I really like the little, um, like the snow leopard updates to the operating systems. I can't remember if it's the ticks or the talks and, um, you know, but I like, I like when they iterate and build on a solid foundation. And I feel like that's a lot of what we're seeing this year. So I'm excited for the little improvements, the widgets, um, uh, the, I, I forget what they're calling the, um, oh my gosh, I have it written down somewhere. The app clips. There we go. I'm really interested to see how, yeah, like how are people actually going to use those Mm. in practice? Um, We, we know what Apple has said about them, you know, it's how how they envision them being used but you know the developer community they're gonna they're gonna innovate and it's gonna be really really interesting to see how that goes um i'm trying to think about like mac and and what about mac os 11 i'm excited about and i'm not really sure there was a lot in there for me uh, well, I, one thing that stood out for me, I guess, and it wasn't really much to, to write home about as I think about it. I wasn't, it sounds like I'm really down on this, doesn't it? Uh, but it was it was messages. I, I know we were planning yeah. to get better uh, experiences with messages and you could send emojis. And as much as I love it all, I think, when do I ever do any of this stuff? When do I ever send someone fireworks? I did it once by accident and nearly gave my mother a heart attack um, when she opened up her text message asking, you know, or, or just saying, I'll be around later with a firework display. Um, I, I, I don't know why I'd want this, but somewhat, for some reason I do. So there you go. We now have that option in, in macOS, Big Sur. Well, and feature parity with messages is years and years and years overdue. I mean, I remember talking about this um, in an Airbnb the first year uh, WWDC moved to San Jose, talking about why isn't there iMessage parity? You know, so that's what, four years ago, three years ago now? So it, it's kind of, for me, it's like a finally... Finally, they did that because, you know, it's just it's nice to be able to move from one platform to the other and know how it works. And there's the fruit of your your catalyst transition. And I I don't know how often people on the Mac. I do a fair bit because I'm sitting in a Mac doing my job. A text message comes in. It's easier for. Yeah. Absolutely. And you copy links and you do all that sort of stuff. And the idea that you could have an application experience that's similar or the same is is pretty great. And as you say, overdue. It's not just, oh, I'm glad they thought of it. It's more like, what took you so long? 
So. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I, I mean, I'm the same as you. I use my uh, Mac all the time, and I use Windows on it as a virtual machine under ARM processors. How long that will last, I don't know, but I do <laughs> it at the moment. Uh, and uh, you know, I, that's obviously all going to sort itself out over the course of time. But you know, at the moment, I can do this, and I'm able to work on Windows, and I can work on Outlook, and do all those lovely things. At the same time, I get a text message. I can very quickly respond. I love voice message on messages, which I can do at the moment. Very easy to access with voiceover. And, you know, it's a quicker way of sending it. Although in saying that, battering out a text message doesn't take that long. Uh, no, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things, but not a lot. It did, again, seem, especially on the Mac side, quite cosmetic in a lot of the, the design. And, and again, I agree with you, Alina. I think it's important that we have uh, some evolution here. I prefer evolution to revolution in this case. But I don't really want to be having to relearn the whole operating system overnight because, you know, they've decided to, to just throw the whole thing out and start again. I don't think there's a need for it. And and you're right, it is, it is a solid foundation. There are things we obviously want to see improved upon. There was one, though, that stood out, which I thought was a bit strange. I don't think it's classed as an accessibility feature. This is on iOS. But it certainly is a useful feature. Try to think what I'd use it for, but you know, here it is. Um, it's called the back tap, which I mm-hmm. think we'll change that at some point. But yeah, the back tap is the name of the feature where you apparently can use single finger or um, is, is it single finger double tap and uh, trip yeah, single it'll finger do, triple it'll single tap, tap double tap and triple tap. And it is under accessibility, yeah. by the way. It's it's going to be it under is, the right. touch section. So. Ah, okay. So what what are we intending to use this for? Because I mean, I, we could use it for a whole range of things, I guess. But what would we what are you guys well, thinking you would they, do with it? They referenced things like calling up control center, things that you already do with some sort of gesture. I mean, I guess this sort of complicated app switcher and control center and things like that. And also, I thought over action, it feels like customization options for things you do often. And it's interesting that they've couched it as an accessibility feature. It is reminiscent of assistive touch, which is the way that works if you haven't used it, is that you have this menu of buttons on the screen and you can assign things like open Siri or open control center or double tap or whatever it is to those assistive touch buttons so that if you have trouble making those pulling and pushing gestures or any other sort of motor disability you can substitute assistive touch for that. So that's what I interpret this to be. I want to mention one other thing which came out of this, and it only came out of a slide. I was reading an article on this earlier, and um, it, it kind of surprised me a little bit. This is not an accessibility thing, but I think it it makes uh, this particular product more useful. Uh, for a long time, people have been concerned about the future of the HomePod. What will it become? What is it doing? You know, is anyone really using it? And I've got mine, and I love my HomePods. But I'd kind of like more audio options on there. And apparently, uh, and this is kind of rumor in a way, or just at least with based on some basic information that's been given up on, on the screen at the keynote, was that there was um, that the HomePod will get third-party uh, support for other music services such as Spotify. That could be interesting. Maybe Amazon Music eventually. I doubt it, but you never know. Um, so theoretically, instead of having to airplay the music from your phone, it could actually just be controlled uh, by voice. Um, I kind of like that, and I like to. I'd love to see more get into the HomePod because I think it's a brilliant speaker, great uh, system. Uh, it'd be good to see it evolve a little bit as well. 
Well, let's roll through yeah. a couple of the other accessibility features. And again, a lot of these are sort of digging around. A couple of them made the keynote. A couple of them did not. Uh, FaceTime will now have sign language detection, which brilliant. So good. Yeah, it's such a great idea. And I mean, um, I, I actually think I, I didn't do one of these pre WWDC wish lists podcasts like a lot of people do. But I think the one time I addressed it, the thing I said was there really need to be some attention paid to features for folks with hearing impairments. And this is not something that I had thought of, but it's such a great idea. Yeah. I think the next iteration of this would be to be able to identify what the sign language is and, you know, turn that into speech or captioning or something. That would be amazing. Well, We're now that we have translation as well. So yeah, there's that's awesome. right. Yeah. I love the translation thing is not an accessibility feature, but but I was fascinated by that, and especially because it's on device, and it it's another way, like sign language, of allowing people who speak different languages to communicate with each other just using the technologies that they're holding in their hands, which is so great. Yeah, definitely. Also, Apple TV now supports the Xbox Adaptive Controller, which has been a very successful accessible controller from Microsoft. They added support for another Microsoft controller, the Elite Wireless Controller. But this is such a great thing, and it's kind of, it's it's really overdue. And I don't know that it'll make Apple TV a super successful gaming platform, but I know I've, I've heard people say that one reason that Apple TV is just not a reasonable thing for them to use is, is there's not an accessible game controller. And now there is. Yeah, now there is. Um, <laughs> Apple Watch has, uh, among other faces, they have a new extra large face, which I'm happy about. I don't really use the extra large face, which is really big digits and one complication. And the reason I don't use the existing one is because it's really ugly. It has sort of old looking ugly digits. Yeah. But this is a very attractive one. It has a really big complication in the center because that's an issue with Apple Watch if you've got low vision is you, you can zoom, but you can't necessarily see the data that's inside of a complication in a way that makes it useful. So I'm kind of looking forward to playing with that. I, yeah. I would love to see more watch faces with digital numbers. Mm -hmm. Um. I don't have vision issues, but I do, um, I'm not good at reading analog time. I'm just, I learned how to read a clock in the first grade. That was many, many years ago, and I'm still not great at it. And um, I would love to have more faces that are customizable with complications that are, are digital. It, it, there's no reason that the watch has to be, reminiscent of an actual analog watch and i feel like they've gone there they have um very like black and white thinking on this they're like we're either going to really lean into the digitalness of this and have dynamic watch faces and we're going to record um smoke at a high frame rate so we can do like slow-mo uh smoke on the watch face or it's like or we're gonna make it look like something a rolex from 1937 or you know whatever and it's like you can have some in between here and i don't love you know we pretty much just have the utility face for that and i don't really love the way it looks so more digital watch faces with more compl complications would be amazing i agree steven yeah, are you an I, apple I, watch user 
I am. And every time I, I talk about the Apple Watch, I always end up getting into the conversation, which I'm not going to do here, but I always get into the conversation of what on earth do I use it for? Um, other yeah. than notifications, right? I don't know what I, what I do with it much beyond that, but I do love it. I love having it. It is the world's most expensive talking watch for me, um, but I still like it. And, you know, I, I do have the clock face on it um, for no other reason than really just because I don't, I, I can't turn the screen off, screen curtain, which turns the screen off on usage is good and um, apparently saves on the battery. I don't know how true that is. But, you know, I like it because it, it means that I can see, having the, the screen on means that I can see not the notification or what the information is on it, but I get a sense of what the notification is. Like usually if it's basically for me, if it's a big yellow box, then I think that's a message, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I like it for that. But as for the watch face, I agree. I think more choice is good. I think the support for third-party uh, faces is good. I think that will give us um, some interesting designs like you're looking for, Alina. I think that would be really, really good to have. And for people with low vision, yeah, we've got to have something that's a bit nicer than that horrible blocky one. Yeah. So the last one, and we already talked about this a little bit, Stephen, this is your uh, your favorite, the spatial awareness on AirPods. But I want to pose so a question to this. you. <laughs> I want to pose a question to you. And it's funny that you mentioned this because uh, on Max Accessibility yesterday, our friend Robin was wondering about the impact of this on apps like Soundscape that use the sound field, as it were, to tell you what direction an object or a, a place location is. And he was wondering... Is this going to mess that up if you have AirPods Pro and you have this spatial awareness and you turn your head and the watch compensates for your having turned your, you know, gives you a different sound? And I, that was, that's above my pay grade. I have no idea whether that's going to happen. But, but is that something that you uh, have thought about at all or that you worry about or are you just excited because you get spatial awareness in your AirPods? I was just looking forward to surround sound in my head, uh, really. Uh, but, you know, I, I kind of like the sound of this, uh, literally. Uh, <laughs> but I, I feel that um, with apps like Soundscape, I mean, we had the whole Bose AR frames uh, situation where Bose had worked with Microsoft to create that kind of spatial awareness in your in your head with the Bose frames. Of course, the AR side has now gone to the, the wall. Uh, so w we don't really know what that means for Soundscape and that partnership. But could perhaps Microsoft look at this as an alternative? I think instead of looking at it from the point of view of um, this could become a problem for us, actually, this could be a real solution to us as well. You know, bearing in mind with that transparency mode on AirPods Pro that really does do it well, that really does give you the real world environment as well as audio in your ear. Um, I think this could work really well. I just I, I don't understand how it would work. Uh, like you say, people who have well way above the pay grade in your case and certainly bigger brains than me would, would figure this one out. But I think it's feasible to say this could be a really exciting time to use that spatial audio, not just for movies, although bearing in mind it does seem to be, uh, at least in the demonstration uh, that was shown, that the iPad was directly in front of the person and that that person was sort of looking at the iPad, watching the movie, um, I don't know how that would work in real life with the uh, with the AirPods walking down a street, say, because of course your phone would not be in front of you; it would be perhaps in your pocket, or you know you'd be using a watch. So I don't know how the technology would work, but the potential is huge. Well, I want to segue a little bit into the idea of what WWDC says about the future of technology conferences, and we talked about our experiences either at past WWDCs or other events. 
But surely this is not going to be the last time that we have a virtual conference experience or that the conference experience has been rethought based on what's happening right now. And so I guess the first question I would ask is how each of you is approaching the rest of WWDC this week and doing what you need to do professionally and also just from your point of view as somebody who's an enthusiast for this stuff. How are, how are, you, how are you covering it? How are you focusing your attention this week? Alina? Uh, well, I, so it's funny because, like I said, when I attend WWDC, I typically do a lot of, you know, like lobby con where I'm sitting around with friends talking about things. Um, I haven't been a WWDC ticket holder since 2015. So what I typically do is I watch the keynote in real time. I write, I watch the platform State of the Union as soon as it's available. And then I promise myself that I will watch videos later. And then I don't. Um, <laughs> or it takes a really long time, you know. Um, so what is kind of nice about this virtual conference experience is that I'm going to sit down today in that time when I would be, you know, bonding with friends and making new connections. I'm actually going to work, um, which is simultaneously a bummer and also a little bit exciting. Um, we're recording this on Tuesday. We started at 10 a.m. Pacific time, which is when um, Tuesday's videos of what would typically be sessions drop. There's a lot of really and good sessions, ha sessions happening right now. <laughs> a lot of, yes. Um, and what I, what I think is really interesting is, you know, sessions were, I think, typically about an hour long. Um, occasionally there were some that were shorter, but... It looks like just kind of eyeballing what's going on in the app. And again, I, I I don't have any experience with this yet, but it looks like maybe they split the sessions into smaller chunks, um, which is going to be awesome for being able to, like, I have 20 minutes. I'm hoping this is how it'll work anyway. I have 20 minutes. I can sit down. I can watch this video and then I can get up and do other things that I need to do and process what I just learned as opposed to like the giant 45 50 minute info dump that we were getting before out of necessity like it wasn't they weren't doing anything wrong it's just how the format is kind of allowing different kinds of flexibility so i'm really excited by that but i have the field guide for developers so what i'm really doing is you know watching videos that seem pertinent to launching apps and figuring out what i need to update in the guide to help guide to help guide developers through their updates this fall. Um, so I've got a lot of video watching ahead of me. I guess from my point of view, I'm looking at this from the end user perspective. You know, what is the customer going to get when iOS 14 lands on their device in in, in the fall? And, and what will they get on their Mac when they download the latest update? And uh, you know, obviously I'm wanting to focus in this week on the accessibility um, the, the sessions that are going to be running there. And I think, you know, in previous years, and it goes back to Alina's point way back at the beginning of this conversation where we talked about the, the personal approach here, I think that I feel this time around at WWDC, I, I'm watching this as someone who's a delegate as opposed to just an outsider. And I think that matters, you know, in the way that they present this. Uh, you know, because I'm able to take part in it in the way I could have done if I was there, 
it feels like I'm part of it more. It doesn't feel like it's something over there that I'm not involved in or, or can't get into. And even though it was open before and even though I could do that, I don't know, it just feels different this time. And, and for that reason, I will be watching more. If they are shortening these videos down and keeping it to you know key points, I think that is brilliant. And I think that does make a heck of a difference to all of us because we've all got busy lives. Um, you know, We're all jumping from thing to thing. I mean, I'm trying to keep a, a website going, a TV show going, a couple of radio shows. You know, There's a lot going on and a lot of hungry beasts that need to be fed and with, with this information. So the more information I can get quickly to digest and then give back out, the better. So, you know, access to information is good, but concise information is better. Yeah. I think we, we've been uh, talking for a while, and I don't do a couple of points because each of you has sort of a unique perspective from my point of view as far as conference going and conference participating goes. And I know, Aline, and you can talk about it as, as you like to, but I know you have for a long time been an advocate of more inclusion in conferences, both for yourself and for those you know, and just trying to make those physical places where we go to hear people speak more inclusive and, and, and accessible and get more folk, get more diverse voices in those conference spaces. And I, I guess I'm wondering if there's any relevance to that kind of focus for this new digital conferencing environment that, as I say, we may or may not be in permanently or for a little while? Or, I mean, do you, do you have any thoughts on that topic? It's really interesting because I do hope that we start to see more digital conferences. Um, when you're talking about things from like a diversity and inclusion perspective, um, including an accessibility perspective, not just I, I, I feel like diversity and inclusion has really been co-opted to talk exclusively or semi-exclusively about things in terms of gender and race, but it shouldn't. Um, when you have a conference in a physical location that introduces a lot of barriers for a lot of people, whether that's physically being able to get somewhere because of accessibility issues. You know, do I need to call the venue before I decide to attend this conference and see what their wheelchair access is like? And also the expense involved, the taking time away from work and families involved, like those are all really big barriers to attending conferences. So I don't necessarily think that every conference needs to be virtual, but I do hope that we kind of start to look at this and think about like, okay, we're not going to be in pandemic response mode forever, I hope. So how can we take some of these lessons and apply them to, to things going forward so that we can really be more inclusive? But what I'm seeing from a lot of conferences is that they have the speaker lineups that are reflective of the speaker lineups that they've always had, which is um, very cisgender, white, male, um, able-bodied, you know, kind of presenters. And I think that there's really an opportunity to use this time to start um, emphasizing the importance of and making plans for making very diverse, inclusive uh, amazing conference experiences that we can't have in real life. You know, I think already we're seeing that with WWDC, with the keynote and the State of the Union. These are really 
cool ways to present this information. And you can't do it this way if you're presenting. I mean, you can play a video for 2,000 people in a conference room or conference hall or whatever, but it's not the same experience, you know? And so I think that we have a real opportunity here. It does feel like people who, whether it's an issue of physical accessibility or cost or maybe even just discomfort with public speaking, might be more open and available to be presenters in visual, visual, virtual environments if they, number one, had the opportunity and number two, were given a little bit of a self-confidence boost to say, hey, you can do this. You're in an environment that is physically or emotionally comfortable for you. And if you have the right equipment and if you have maybe a little guidance as to you know how to go about making a presentation, you'd probably be great and you'd probably be greater than you would be had you gone through all of the rigmarole of getting yourself to a conference across the country. Yeah. And I think we saw that. I think the keynote was an excellent example of that, where um, I know that internally Apple encourages people to present on stage from a variety of backgrounds and experiences and races and, and genders and whatever. But um, it's a very different sell to be like, all right, now you need to get on a stage in front of all of these people versus let's record a video. You can do this in several takes, um, you know, and it, it's going to be fine. And I think we saw that reflected in the keynote where we saw more, um, more diversity than we have in a long time. And I'm wondering if that was part of the sell it was like, okay, so, you know, the, the person presenting about Apple Maps um, was in a wheelchair, is a wheelchair user. And it's like, it's a lot easier logistically for her if she's not having to worry about tripping over cables backstage or rolling over cables backstage or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I think that that was, I think that that's amazing. And I'm glad that they took advantage of this opportunity to kind of showcase that, that it's not just a company full of you know, old white executives, that it really is a diverse company and that we do get to see the faces and hear from the people working on these products who we wouldn't have seen on stage. There were a lot of female presenters this time. There had been at yep. the previous WWDC, but I think this time was even more diverse. There were some folks of color. Obviously, I would love to see more. Um, I will say last year, and this is exciting to me because this is somebody I had met like a couple months before this happened. There's a, a young developer uh, who works in accessibility at Apple who did a presentation at WWDC last year. And, and she was her specific topic was how to make better voiceover labels, which is great that there was even a topic that granular. But she's like 23 and she works at Apple and she's, you know, in the accessibility uh, team. And she did a great job. And the reason I'm reminded of her was because on the last episode, I talked with a guy named Rob Whitaker, who's a developer in, in the UK. And he mentioned that presentation. He works in accessibility, but he's not doesn't have a visual disability himself. But he said, watching this presentation and learning how a person who is blind wants the accessibility labels to be created for the benefit of somebody who's actually a voiceover user rather than just sort of a technical spec was very meaningful to him in terms of his own work in developing accessible software. So it's not just a nice to have or window dressing. It's somebody actually making an impact on the developers out there who have to make the, the software. 
And it's interesting, you know, anytime I've ever done a talk on any topic, be it technology or otherwise, and I've talked about my own experiences, the one thing that I get called on every single time. And when you leave the stage and you're heading out the door, people are on you asking, you know, tell me more about your experience. Tell me more about this. You know, it's not the answer is always the same answer, which is that you want to know. Uh, the information from the person who's most likely to know the answer, right? So, you know, it's it's for us, it makes perfect sense. You know, if I think about a technical problem I've got, I don't go to a sighted person to get the answer because they're not going to know the answer. Certainly won't know to, to guide me to the right answer uh, that I'm looking for. They may have the answer, but not the one I want, which is, you know, the, the voiceover way as opposed to the sighted with a, cursor, with a, a mouse and cursor way. Um, so, you know, I always go to that person. I think that's where we need to invest in more. We need to to see that that's the value of diversity. It's not just to get more people on stage of different color, of different, it's to get experience. It's to get understanding of, you know, the one thing that the Black Lives Matter movement has taught all of us is more about that community that we may not know about. I don't know much about it. I live in a, you know, a, quite a white town. I'm not going to lie about it, you know, and there's not a lot of information here uh, to go on. Whereas, you know, I've learned so much in the past few months uh, and it, it's it's on us to learn that, you know, and, and we as blind people, or me as a blind person, I need to teach the world about my experiences. I can't just say the world doesn't get it. Um, because I've got to be part of that solution. So, you know, having voices like ours or people who are disabled on stage at these events is key for us to to be heard, but to be understood as well. Stephen, that sounds like a, a pretty good segue into your brand new project. Will you tell us about Double Tap Online? What is it? Yeah, and you get an exclusive here, Shelley, because nobody else... Is, knows about this yet. It is uh, first to be talked about here, and that is Double Tap Online. Now, Double Tap is uh, a, a website which has been around for a little while, but uh, I say Double Tap Online, but actually we're starting something even bigger um, from the, the website, from the TV show, from the radio show. Um, we're expanding out into our own uh, radio station and actually broadcasting our own 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week uh, channel called Double Tap Now. And the purpose of Double Tap now is to do exactly that, is to teach people who uh, know a little bit about accessibility, a lot about accessibility. That's the key. And to invest uh, in lots and lots of interesting content around accessibility uh, for blind people, but also disabled people more generally. It is really important to me um, that people are aware of what technology can do for them. And it's important that the wider society understands how technology can benefit us. So, you know, it, it removes that fear of if you lose your vision tomorrow, that you are unable to do anything at all, that, you know, you, the idea of picking up your iPhone ever again is gone. You know, the, the idea of all of that has just disappeared. I want people to understand that technology can help them no matter what condition they have, what disability they have, however they identify technology is there for them. And I think Double Tap now is going to do that, not on our own. We've got lots and lots of Double Tap content that we're going to put on there. But we're also partnering up with some amazing podcasts. Can I mention this one? <laughs> so you know, tons of content coming, but from wonderful uh, podcast providers and content such as this, exactly this, uh, this very podcast parallel, which I'm so, so glad. Uh, is going to be coming on board uh, as well as Dot to Dot with Robin Christofferson. Uh, we've got uh, content coming from Australia, from the States, from the UK, uh, some up and coming content producers as well who are just starting out in the world. But everything 
every program has an accessibility themed uh, content base and you know we'll have uh, an audience I'm sure who will come with it but also people will discover new content as well on there so shows you, you may listen to the show every single time it comes out but you might not know about some other shows and we want to tell people about those programs as well and, and it helps drive uh, subscribers to you but it also uh, helps uh, you know just enlarge people's experience uh, and you know that's the thing you know for me I know a lot about blind tech, but I don't know much about disability tech. And again, like I said earlier about Black Lives Matter and what I've learned what because I've spent the time educating myself in a lot of these issues. It's the same with technology and disability. I understand my slice of it, but I don't know much else about other slices. And I want to know more about that. And there really is nowhere else to go um, for that, you know, that overall look at it and, and that conversation. So we're bringing that to life with Double Tap now, which starts 1st of July, and we're very excited. So the experience somebody's going to have is like, it'll be like listening to a radio station, but I think you told me they'll be also all able to get it on their smart speakers or anywhere else. So, is it, so how is that, would I need to tune in at a certain time, or is it going to be on demand, or what, what's it going to feel like for a listener? So when you tune in, it's a typically a classic radio station approach. And I'm a radio guy. From day one, I was a radio guy. And the thing was that I... Um, I always loved radio because you discovered things, whether it be the latest hit or a new song or, you know, whatever it was. And and actually, when it comes to podcasting, I discovered a great podcast called Radio Lab that I'd never heard of before. And I discovered it one night um, and I, I fell in love with this podcast and I wanted to go and download it. And it was a, maybe a little bit later I thought, you know, why isn't there somewhere that I can go to for this, for, for assistive technology? There just isn't anywhere, really. And, uh, you know, there are lots of podcasts and there are tons of episodes of podcasts. But, you know, having the time to go and get them, to listen to them, to, to you know, it, it takes an effort to do that. And that's all fine. But the, the problem I have is that I just don't have the time. So sometimes I just want to put something on that can play away merrily in the background and I can learn as I go, as I can, you know, I can listen and learn and be educated and have a laugh and all those things. That's what radio is. It's that voice. It's that friendly voice. So when someone tunes in, they're going to hear all these great shows. Uh, there will be a schedule. So there'll be certain shows will be on at certain times of the day and there'll be or appointments to listen, if you like. There'll be key uh, shows on at specific points. So, you know, you tune in, say, on a Tuesday afternoon and hear Parallel at 6 p.m. or something like that. Um, final schedule to be arranged. Um, but, you know, that's the idea. So you would tune in for those specific programs. But around that would be other great content from other great podcast providers giving us all something to learn from. Well, uh, the best place to go right now is doubletap.online. Information is coming soon. So uh, by the time you're hearing this, information will start to be trickling out onto our website. Uh, listen links there. We'll also be uh, encouraging people to ask their smart speaker to play Double Tap now. Uh, and once that's live, you'll get access to that. Uh, it's not live at the moment. So you, it might be by the time you listen to this, though. But, you know, at some point, all the information will be put onto our website, doubletap.online, and also via our Twitter feed, which at the moment is at Double Tap Canada. Uh, and the reason for that is, even though we are essentially a worldwide service, we, we started in Canada. So our life began there. And for that reason, our Twitter handle is at Double Tap Canada. And you can find us on Facebook as well. All the information is posted there. Uh, it is really worth uh, checking out. I think you're going to find some really interesting shows and topics you don't know much about, and hopefully you will by the end of it.
do is this. Uh, when I'm going to find that it's helpful to have a little food in my bag, some sustenance in case I can't find a, a proper meal during the day. And so I, I wonder, uh, first of all, is that an experience that, that I, I, both of you co-sign? And uh, if so, what is your favorite go-to snack for a long day of being at a conference? Aline? <laughs> well, I have the added trouble of uh, not being able to eat gluten. So even at conferences where snacks are provided, it's often like pastries. So I tend to keep uh, Epic bars in my bag. They're just protein bars. And I always, always, always have a water bottle on me. So typically I just grab a protein bar and some water and I'm good to go. Stephen, do you have one? I- I, I have probably many things. Um, I'm, I have the opposite problem that I, I eat everything, uh, and that's not good. Uh, so, you know, I will, I will snack on many things. Now, I call them crisps. I think you'll call them chips. Um, I think that's right. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I tend to have a bag of those around cheese and onion, preferably, um, or, or at raisins. I'm a big lover of raisins, but I have to warn you, you can't have too many. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> So I started carrying a bottle of water around with me when I went to a conference about uh, cocktails uh, called Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans. And it was all about what was new in craft cocktails and how to make bitters. It was just it was super geeky. And that was what I was uh, working on at the time. And I was writing for pod co- co- cocktail blogs. But I learned that if you don't carry a bottle of water because there's samples in all the sessions, uh, you're going to have a problem. So that's the point at which I started carrying water in my bag. Mm. But the snack I carry... And I'm always careful because I'm aware that people have peanut allergies, but I really like to carry peanuts because they're very munchable and they're small and they're, they don't take up much room. But I, as I say, I'm always, I don't pull them out on airplanes and I always try my best to be aware of my surroundings and make sure that somebody who has an allergy doesn't have a problem. <laughs> Elaine and Stephen, this has been really awesome. Thank you so much for being here on the second day of WWDC. I am keeping you and me away from the rest of the conference. This will be posted the, the, uh, later on today so that people who are still consuming WWDC will have it to add to their diet of delicious um, audio and video. Uh, but thank you both for uh, being here. Aline, tell us where people can find you online. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm pretty prolific, so follow, um, I don't know, standards disclaimers apply, but I'm at Aline, it's A-L-E-E-N. And my website is applaunchmap.com. Uh, you can find me podcasting on Relay FM and The Incomparable. Excellent. And Stephen, you talked about Double Tap now. Double Tap, which, which, I misappropriate, which I misappropriated as Double Tap Live. It is Double Tap now. But tell us where we can find you personally, social media-wise, if you care to. Yeah, so you'll find me at Tech Talker Steve uh, on Twitter. That's the easiest place to find me. Uh, you'll find the website, doubletap.online. Uh, and that's the, the home, essentially, of everything Double Tap. Uh, and there you'll find Double Tap Now, Double Tap TV, Double Tap Podcast. All of that is there. And uh, for my other podcast for uh, the RNIB, you can find that by searching any of your podcast providers for RNIB Tech Talk. You can, find, you can find this podcast at Relay.fm slash Parallel. You can also follow us over on Twitter at Parallel Pods, or you can follow me personally on Twitter at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. We'll be back in two weeks with what I hope is going to be a very interesting episode. That's all I'll say for now. Bye now.